Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Many writers and consultants have an opinion about what makes for great leadership, and we've certainly hosted a number of those opinions on this podcast. And usually those opinions are focused around the main theme of their book or perhaps of their experience. Now, this today, this episode, I want to take a different perspective. I want to take a more holistic view, and we're going to do that by talking to somebody who's a chief human resource officer inside a company today who's watched the key mistakes that he sees in leaders. He's watched the outstanding qualities of the best leaders. He sees what people need to do for their development, and he also has a strong opinion about what it takes to really hire great talent. So we're not coming with a singular model point of view. We're coming with this great holistic point of view about how do you develop great leaders? And of course, we're going to talk about, as we always do, how do you think about that next step in your career and how do you get out of your comfort zone? So my guest today is J.P. Elliott. JP is a trusted business partner to C-level and senior management teams, and he has a proven track record of translating business needs into people strategies aligned with the enterprise priorities and the P&L targets. Now, over his career, JP has been fortunate to work across a broad spectrum of industries and organizations, especially those undergoing significant transformation. And that's led him to be versatile, pragmatic, and data-driven, who believes in teams that deliver results. He's currently Chief People Officer at Williams Marston, which is a national leader in complex accounting, tax, and valuation services. And prior to that, JP had leadership roles at McAfee, Dick's Sporting Goods, The Brinks Company, and Lenovo. And in case that wasn't enough, along the way, he took a tour out of HR to help co-found a successful brand strategy and design firm that featured clients like Warner's Brothers, Fox, and Lego. So JP, you've had quite the experience here. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Wanda. We're excited to be with you today, and I appreciate that. As you're going through there, I kind of thought, gosh, am I getting old or have I just moved a lot, but maybe <laughs> no, both? Not getting old. There's no getting old. I'm not <laughs> hearing about the word I'm getting wise, getting wisdom, getting perspective, or you moved quickly. Either of those will do just <laughs> fine. All right. So speaking of varied career, um, what I find is interesting is you've been in so many different industries, but also in fields like brand strategy and design, plus all the various HR roles. What have you learned about taking yourself out of your comfort zone? Well, first, I would just say, I think everyone has a different view of what comfort zone means for them. Uh, but I am somebody who has always been very comfortable operating out of my comfort zone and, and really seek that out in a lot of ways. And so for me, you know, when I think about comfort zone, I guess I think back to like <clears throat> what that really means and why my career have chosen to make certain decisions I've made. And, and it really, I've almost by design pushed myself in my comfort zone because I think about three things that have mattered in my career when I, when I thought about it. And I know a lot of people would say, well, I really want to be a CEO or a chief human resources officer. I don't think most people start your career out Great. thinking that way. We're like, I want to make good money really love what I do. 
uh, and, and do something where I can give back or make an impact, right? And I started out really from my, I think, with my parents, the way I thought about careers, I said, there's three things that really matter in great careers. And the first is that differentiation matters. And I'll talk about what that means and why I think differentiation is so critical. Second, experience really matters. And the third, relationships matter. Mm-hmm. And so why I talked about differentiation is because you know, when I looked at, my dad was an economist uh, and a small business owner. And so I think I always thought about things in supply and demand. Mm-hmm. We would talk about different, you know, different jobs and careers. And it was about skills, you know, skill scarcity. And it was always very clear that when less people could do what you could do, there was typically higher demand, more compensation, more job security. And a lot of times that work was more interesting. And that led me to get my PhD in organizational psychology Really because I enjoy business and psychology, but there was a push from my family to do something that people typically didn't do. Now, we could debate whether a PhD is a great idea for someone in my field or not, or it's necessary. It probably isn't. But the reality is it differentiates you as only 1% of the population or so has a PhD. And more importantly, I think it sets aside, at least in the field that I'm in, you're willing to do the hard work you know, dissertation, et cetera, you're going to put your, push yourself through. So early on in my career, I think it differentiated myself. And I thought that was really important. The second is really thinking about the niche that I chose, right? So if you think about differentiating, some people can do it by industry, by the role, you know, but having a clear focus where you can be an expert or go deep is really important to get yourself out of that comfort zone, right? Because you're going to have to go and learn a lot of areas. And so for me, that was, the two things around my you know, differentiation matter, becoming a subject matter expert. And when you start to do that, you realize how much and how little you know, right? So that was the first piece um, that helped me get the right experiences. The second piece, um, and so for me, I guess differentiation, I go a little bit further just to make it really clear. I was like, how do I differentiate myself on those experiences? And so I believe experiences matter. Yeah. And you probably heard this story and maybe you haven't, but I've Jim Shanley is the one where I originally heard this from the two golfers, right? There's two golfers and one golfer has played, both golfers have played for 15 years. They're really identical, same handicap. And one golfer has played the same golf course every Saturday for 15 years. The other golfer plays a different golf course, you know, for 15 years. And now they're going to go play and challenge each other on a new golf course. And the question is, which golfer is going to win that golf a golfing around. And most people would say, well, it's probably the, the golfers played a lot of different courses. And that's how I think about my career. And so, you know, experience really is the best teacher. And so I've pushed myself out of my comfort zone sometimes when I wasn't even ready and taken opportunities or jobs um, or changed industries to push myself and see what that would be like. And so I did that early on, moving into consulting, mm-hmm. you know, from consulting, moved internal and joined Lenovo, which in 2010, the iPad was coming out. Everyone said the PC was dead, and China and Lenovo was a Chinese global national company. And people were like, "Oh my God, you know, are you going to work for the Chinese company? What's that like?" Yet that was an incredible experience, right? And I learned so much about what global leadership looks like, what great organizations look like, um, and running really a company that size. Yeah. You know, and then I shifted from Lenovo to <clears throat> the Brinks company, which was the opposite of. A Chinese-run PC company it was a hundred-year-old, really operating company conglomerate, if you will. That Brinks was trying to make more of a global um, operating company, and they asked me to be the head of talent 
and then quickly asked me to be the head of HR and help turn around that business in the US. And so from a head of talent to now I'm an HR business partner and we're driving a transformation of the business, you know, and then a shift back to talent. And then now actually I've made the shift into private equity as a CHRO, um, really because I wanted that experience, you know, right. and again, it's like for me, you're collecting experiences along the way. So it's like, how do you differentiate yourself? And what are the experiences that matter? And the last piece is about relationships that matter. And I think if you've got really strong relationships, realizing the fact that no one's really successful on their own, everyone who's had a great career, typically have people who have supported them, mentored them, coached them, advocated for them, or you wouldn't get these great roles. And so your job is to figure out, well, how are those, how do you develop those relationships? How can you be someone that's trusted so they want to help you see you succeed? Um, and leverage those relationships to understand what the possibilities could be. You know, so I took a chance on the Brinks job with Holly Tyson, who was a CHRO at Brinks at the time. And she was really the main reason I took that job was because I thought she was amazing, progressive, really got along. I knew I'd learn a lot from her and I made uh -huh. that decision. Yeah, you know, now coming into private equity, I've been friends with David Cohen, who is Kel runs Kelso's human capital. He's a partner with Kelso's human capital. Uh, division, if you will, or runs is responsible for human capital at Kelso. And we've talked a long time about what PE is like. And he was the one that really helped take a chance and made the doors open for my opportunity. And so my point on that is I think getting out of your comfort zone is a combination of, you know, why do you want to do it? Does it really align with what makes sense for you and your career set? And then thirdly, do you have people who are willing to kind of help you get there? Right. to take those chances. So you're not going to just dive in the deep end without any uh, life vest on. It's um, differentiation, experience, and relationships. I don't think you can get better advice for a career progression on that one. I want to dig in on differentiation because there's a subtlety in that one that is in contrast to what some people believe I say on this podcast and in my book. And you say, you know, it's helpful to be have a skill that is scarce, that not very many people are particularly good at, or at least to be especially good at something that a lot of people are not especially good at. And so that's that deep expertise and deep, deep, deep focus on skills. But I often talk about the need to get out of the expertise and do the spanning roles. And what's interesting to me about the differentiation is it is both I mean, I think if you're starting in your career, you've got to have that differentiation, that depth. And then there's a point at which you can broaden from there. And your experiences are what's going to help you broaden. Because it doesn't mean you leave your expertise. It means I see it in different formats. I see it in transformation. I see it in a turnaround. I see it in small. I see it in global. I see it in PE. So now I just gave a long-winded view. What's your take on what I just said? You agree or you disagree? No, I actually absolutely agree. And I think, you know, your model of you know, expert versus spanning leadership is really right on the money. You know, for me, when I think about why I was able to move up into a talent role, I had done every area of talent, whether it was change management as a consultant or organizational design or development, you know, talent management. But then I had to make the shift into being an HR business partner. And now I had compensation benefits, employer relations, managing executives, talent acquisition. And so I had to span pretty quickly. But the reality was the depth of having the depth, at least in talent, made me feel like I was able to do that. But you had to sort of unlearn a lot of the other things. 
And so what I tell people is it's that T-shaped career, like you said, you have to have some depth so you have confidence and confidence in yourself, but then you have to be able to sort of let things go, you know, which is the hardest part, right? So hiring people who are doing talent maybe better than me and letting them run with it. You know, I think empowering your team is always the hardest part being a span, that spanning role, but I think it's absolutely correct. Um, and so I, I don't, I totally think your model's right, but the differentiation piece for me, when I just think about um, pushing yourself out of the comfort zone, it was always a little bit of the motivation. Like I have to figure out how to differentiate myself more, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe that's a deep, different conversation, different podcast of like <laughs> my childhood upbringing that I never feel like I've done enough or accomplished yeah. enough. And so I was like, well, how do I keep digging and doing more? Right. Um, but for me, that was part of that factor of kind of peeling right. back the onion. Right. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and certainly I often talk with people about careers and career moves and that get out of the one place where you now have the depth and start looking for the kinds of experiences that's going to give you the credibility for the roles that you ultimately want. All right. Relationships. We both know you can't do anything without relationships, but for some reason, a whole host of people I talk to seem not to think it's all that important. So do you have any secrets to developing relationships? You've got a number that have been really important to you. Kana, what's made those work? You know, relationships are like anything else. It's really what you put into them. It's what you get out of them. I, but I think <clears throat> and Angela Lane, who's a friend of mine, the VP of talent at Abvi, who writes on this a little bit, she talks about being a positive networker. And yeah. she has an article like, don't be this guy kind of thing. The people who just call you when they need something. And I've got someone who is a friend of mine I worked with a long time ago at IBM. Every four or five years or so, he has to make a career transition. I get a phone call. Yeah. But I never get a call otherwise. And that's not really the relationship you want to have because people aren't really inclined. So the reality is I think if you're going to build relationships, you've got to give more than you get. You've also typically have to have a, you have to have a reason to build that trust. So, I mean, you think about where I think people have really failed is they don't, they build a lot of time working in these relationships eight to five in their current company. And then they move to the next company and they never call the people that they spent five years, six or 10 years with and check mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even if it feels unnatural, I think reaching out and saying, how are you been thinking about you? You know, that stuff is really, really important in terms of that networking. The deeper relationships with someone who's a mentor or a coach or a boss, I think it's because you delivered for them in the, in the line of fire, yeah. you know, and you built that trust and they feel like, hey, they've invested in you and you invested in them. Um, those take longer to develop. And I don't think you can manufacture those. But if you're not thinking strategically about your relationships and who values you and who you value and how those experiences could actually help your career and how you can help their career or help them do something better at work, then you're not really taking this seriously on LinkedIn, people you've had lunch with, but you can go deeper by really starting to think, how can I help you? How can they help me? But not in a transactional way, but really in a genuine way. Anyway, right. Um, Two things that you said that strike me, give more than you get, have a reason to build the trust, actually three things. I have to have a reason that we're going to talk and continue and so on. And especially for upward delivering in the line of fire, you know, when it has been a rough, rocky patch and you've delivered and come through, those are the kind of relationships that are going to stick with you, I think, for a really, really long time. Okay. 
Um, so presumably you're going to tell people to do a little bit of analysis if they're thinking about stepping out of their comfort zone. So one, have you differentiated yourself enough? Do you need to do more? Two, what kind of experiences do you now need to have and why? And then three, where are your relationships that people are going to help you? Did I get that Absolutely. straight? Yep. Perfect. <clears throat> I love it. All right. Let's shift out of your career move. And I want to put your HR hat on. Um, so many people I talk to coming and going are struggling with what's next. So it's fairly easy early in the career to say, yes, I'll take that next title promotion, typically a little bit more responsibility, more money. I'll take the next title, the next title. And there's a point at which you're now bumping up against a senior boss or boss, and you look at the boss's job and you go, yeah, I don't think I want that one. <laughs> it doesn't look that appealing. And you're sitting there stuck going, well, what do I do now? So in that space, what's your advice? Yeah, this really reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Seth Gooden, who's, if your story isn't working for you, you can find a better one to take its place. And what that really means is that, you know, I think a lot of us, we feel more stuck and I think you're not alone. You know, to your point, I know very successful people who feel trapped in very successful jobs and say, gosh, I'm not sure this is what I want to do. I think a lot of, of course, the pandemic made us all kind of rethink things a little bit. Um, so at first, I would just say you're not alone. And that means that there's role models out there who have probably navigated this into other areas, right? right? So that's really important. The second, to your earlier point, you have to take an inventory and really be clear on what matters to you, what are your skills, um, and what do you want your life to look like? You know, and there's a great Warren uh, Warren Buffett parable here that <laughs> I'll paraphrase where you know i believe it was actually his pilot who said to him hey i really want to get these things accomplished how do you get more focused in your life and warren buffett said hey why don't you write down 25 things that you want to accomplish and matter to you and the pilot came back and showed him the 25 list and he said okay the top five things that's what you need to focus on and he said well once once i get those done pilot said, i'll get to the next five things and Warren Buffett said, no, that's your do not do list. Like, don't do those. They're going to distract you from what you really want to accomplish with your life. You need to be more focused. And so I think an exercise like that where you go back through and say, what do I really want to do? What would be next? What are the five things I should do? What are the next 10 things? And say, what's going to distract me is really important. Because a lot of times, I don't think we're always as clear. And so I think that's really, really important. And that might be more family life. It may be more of um, a coaching and support role. Maybe I don't want to be a leader. I want more of an individual contributor role at a certain type of company. That's going to be really vary for all of us. That's important. Because uh, if you don't know where you want to go, people can't help you. Yeah. Second, I would identify the skills that I call our balloons that can help rise you up, bring you up in the air. Yeah, you can transfer into other companies. These are things that are going to help lift up you and get you to that next position. And I would think about the skills that are anchors that might pull you down, you know, or that you need to let go and chart a new path. Mm -hmm. Because part of the hardest thing when you want to make a switch is us. You know, it's, I want to be in better shape, yet I don't really want exercise. Like, I know what I need to do. Am I really, really willing to do that? And so I think that's important to think about what do you have to give up if you're making this switch and try something new? Uh, and the last, I would just say, we talked about this before, but seeking out and expanding your network, talking to people who have done something like that, 
you would be surprised if you reached out to someone on LinkedIn and said, hey, it looks like you're doing this type of role. I'm really interested. Would you mind spending 15 minutes and just give me some advice on how you got there? Even if you were early in your career, I guarantee you people are going to say yes to that more often than they say no, because generally people are really generous. But the last piece I think is the most important is really you got to get to the point where you have optionality. And this is important because I think we feel you can feel a little bit like I'm trapped. So the optionality piece is write down five different options that you could consider today. We all have them. We just don't think about them very often, right? We could start a company. We could do go to a nonprofit. We could, you know, um, become a creator and start your own individual digital course. I don't know, but we can do a lot of things differently. We take a step back, but really kind of get that optionality so you don't feel so stuck. I think that's one of the key pieces. And then, okay, well, kind of try those hats on and start to figure out which one makes the most sense. And now you have to chart the path. That's that's the hard work. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing is you're not alone and you've got optionality. You just have to figure out that yeah. puzzle to get it fit for you. I don't think I have ever interviewed a senior level leader who at some point in their career didn't feel stuck. I just, I mean, maybe you have a different experience, but I think Mm -hmm. every one of them has had that experience at some point and had to figure out how to get the heck out of there and get moving again. Because if you're unhappy, you're not going to be good at what you're doing. There's, you're just not going to be excellent. So I love that one. Balloon skills and anchor skills. What a great, I'm going to come back to that one for sure. I'll put your name on it when I come back to it. And optionality. You know, I often find that when people start talking within their existing company to others who've done whatever interesting jobs, they suddenly find that their skills are actually more portable than they thought they were. And so you begin to open up options inside your own company too. So cool ideas. Yeah, no, I love that. I think um, I wrote a post, I had this epiphany and I was like, you know, the most overlooked job opportunity is the one you're currently in. And I was thinking about people just don't typically understand. I always want to, I want the next job. I want to leave this company, get a raise. Well, your company probably has a lot of opportunities today. There's projects that aren't being done. There's roles that will open up, you know, so dig in and do great work where you're at, I think is the first piece of advice I give anyone and then see what happens. You remind me of a senior leader of one of my clients who said of someone I was coaching Look, I don't know what she's worried about. Has anybody seen any lack of problems around here? There's always something else to go do to go fix if you sort of dig in and figure out how to get that done and involve people in doing it. Okay, so while we're talking about leaders, let's talk about leaders. I'm sure, well, you have seen a lot for sure. Um, Some of them were amazing, and I suspect some of them were a little less than ideal. And I'll qualify ideal for you might not be ideal for somebody else. But either way, no names. I don't want any detail. I don't want any dirt on anybody. What I want to know is both the pro and the con. What sets the what is it about the leaders that get wrong? What are their missteps? And then we're going to flip the question and ask, what do they get right? Great. Well, you know, I thought about this, Wanda, especially for new leaders. There's sort of, I guess, two buckets, right? New leaders and leaders overall. Because I think when you're coming new into a company and the stat that I think Center for Creative Leadership put out there a few years ago, it's around 40% of new leaders fail within the first 18 months. And so that's a really high failure rate when you think about how much work goes into hiring and selecting somebody. And I think 
we like to blame the organizations, but actually, I think you have to blame sometimes the leaders a little bit. And what I see, there's really three things that happen. One is failing to listen, learn, and understand the culture. So I kind of call this leadership by playbook. They come in arrogant. You know, hey, you hired me from this hotshot company. I'm going to come in and fix this place. And they start to put their playbook in. And immediately, the antibodies of that culture reject it because they haven't listened. And all of a sudden, no one wants that person in that company anymore, right? That's the first one. Second, just making changes too fast to people, processes, et cetera. This is the, you know, I call hero leadership, adding too much value too quickly. You know, and I get it because you're like, hey, that search, I'm paying a lot of money. The search fee paid, we paid a lot of money that search fee to find or that search fee to get me in here. So we, I feel like I've got to add value immediately. And honestly, what happens instead of learning and listening, that gets rejected as well. Uh, and the first, the last one probably is just not really defining success in the first six months with their manager. And that, so you're set up for failure right from the get-go because something was not said or stated that this leader had to deliver that they never got aligned on. Mm. And six months later, they think they're doing great. And their boss is like, you're not delivering what I expected you to deliver. And that's really on the manager as well, but if you're a new executive, you got to figure that out. Yeah. So that's yeah. why I think about new leaders overall. It's really kind of leadership by playbook, hero leadership, and not uh, setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've both seen that an awful lot. It's an interesting conundrum, the first one, the listen and learn. Okay. So you first walk into a company at almost any level, people want to know, how did you do it at your prior company? And there's a period of time where people want to hear those stories. And then that period of time closes really fast and they don't want to hear it anymore because they don't want to think you think that place was better and we're not good enough. And I don't want to be that place. We're a different place. I mean, there's a whole host of reasons, but how much time, I mean, how long do you get to say, here's what we did it at my prior company before you're going to get killed? <laughs> Well, first, I have learned you should never say I did it this way in my prior company. So a lot of times, the the more, I guess, gentler ways to say in my past life, I've seen it done this way, mm -hmm. right? Um, hey, what I've read or my experience, I've seen in this. But bringing up a company in a specific example is definitely a turnoff no matter what. So I don't think you do that. I, What I've done in my past and I've come in is I really say, look, my motto is I'm going to respect the past and ask you to embrace the future. And so I'm going to listen and learn, and we're going to co-create what the future looks like. I know that there, every decision, process, whatever it is, was designed with the best intentions in mind. No one tried to design this the wrong way. And maybe now we're all looking at it differently because we have a different perspective, or there's a new technology or a new mandate. But let's co-create this together is really the way to handle that. And but you've got to do it. It is subtle. Uh, and the key is you can't do it too fast. And so I think you've got probably 45 to you know 60 days when you can sort of get there. And then they're expecting by 60 to 90 days, you should start to say, hey, I've got a point of view on how we can make things better. Yeah. But just never degrade what happened before you because you really don't know why they were there. Yeah. You know, and, and it might be your decisions that you made when they ex exit you out that someone else is now <laughs> critiquing a year from now because you didn't listen. Yeah, right. I, well, I certainly see that all the time that people come in 
it, I don't think they come in with the intention of being arrogant, but it comes across as incredibly arrogant because there's a, oh, this is terrible. This shouldn't have been done this way. And, you know, there were people sitting in the room who were part of that decision. They, you know, you just lost them in that process. Exactly. And I know there's a popular phrase, 90 days, but I sort of feel like today you don't get 90 days to start to add value. I, I think you're closer to the mark on the 45 to 60 day mark somewhere. And but you don't have to change the entire universe in 60 days. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, find a way to progress. add value. Exactly. How do you add value in that time period? And what I, what I encourage people to do is to interview their entire team. It could be other stakeholders or peers and have a structured interview guide. It could be three to five questions. And I won't go all through all the questions, of course, but and you, you can make them up for yourself. What I like to do is ask one question. is like, what's the biggest problem or challenge facing the team or the business? What's one thing you do that no one knows you do that keeps the lights on, you know, and it's really important. And so, you know, those questions help you, number one, get to know the team better. But what you can quickly do is take that summary, share that with your boss, share it with your, your peers and be like, hey, here's what I'm learning. Is this right? Is this the right direction? And so it automatically puts you in the posi position of like, hey, you're learning, you care, you want to know, and they've identified the problems for you. And now you can say, okay, I think this is right. Can we start to move forward on this and get some right. quick wins? Right. I think you'd be surprised how frequently people agree with the problems. They just, you, you got to draw it out of them to get there and not change it all at one time because the organization can't digest it that much. JP, this is a perfect place to take a break. Okay, perfect. So my guest today is JP Elliott. He is currently Chief People Officer at Williams Marston. And prior to that, he held a whole bunch of different leadership roles, McAfee, Dick Sporting Good, the Brinks Company, Lenovo, as well as a stint in brand strategy and design and a stint in consulting. So quite a varied career. When we come back, I want to talk about what the best leaders do. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. Tune in for And Security for All, hosted by Kim Hakem. Each week, we look into a different aspect of cybersecurity, which is important to know for anyone who is involved with the internet daily, which is probably all of us. We take the technical jargon and make it easier to understand while helping you to identify weaknesses and issues in your own cybersecurity and fix them now. And Security for All is broadcast live every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, 
Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is J.P. Elliott. J.P. is currently a chief people officer at Williams-Marston. We've been talking about J.P.'s experience moving around his career, his ideas about how you get out of the comfort zone, and his advice for your own career. And just to repeat, I love this notion as you're thinking about how to accelerate your career, think about how you differentiate yourself with your expertise, with your day-to-day performance. Think about how you get variety of experiences because that's part of differentiation as well. And think about the relationships. And I love this. Give more than you get. Stay in touch with people. Don't let them go cold. And um, create a reason for people to trust you. I love those. Then we were talking about next, what the best leaders or what the worst leaders do. And we were talking about this notion that they come in in a new role with a bit of arrogance that I know everything and I'm going to show you what to do. And they come in with making too many changes too fast and they come in not being terribly aligned with what it was their boss really wanted them to do. So some great comments, JP. Let's shift from what leaders fail at doing and why that 40% failure rate in the first 18 months. And I want to talk about what the best to do. So your point of view. Yeah, you know, I think the best leaders, number one, really understand two things. They understand how they personally can create value. So what are they really good at? You know, what are they not so good at? What has the organization hired them for? And then depending on what your level is, what's the importance of that role? You know, I think the best leaders I've ever worked for are constantly thinking, is this the best and highest use of my time? Is this what I should be thinking about? Or is this something my team should be thinking about? And make sure that I'm really thinking about adding value where it makes the most sense. So that's the first piece. The second is more about they have a clear operating system. And you know we think about this operating system for computers and things like that, but they have an operating system of how they manage and lead a team. And that might be around how they set goals, creating dashboards, empowering weekly stand-ups, you know, making sure execution's on track. There's just a way they operate that feels structured, maybe not rigid, but structured. And that structure is really important, I think, to not only get your leaders and you know and peers engaged with you, your boss, but your team going the right direction. Because so much of the leader is dependent on that team. And if our team is not executing, if our team is not clear, you know, we're going to be in trouble. So I think having a clear operating system is really, really important. It also helps people understand where you where you stand as a leader. So the best leaders I work for are like, here's how I operate. I don't like emails at 10 o'clock at night. You know, I don't want you working 10 o'clock at night. I'm not going to look at them. I'll look at them the next morning. You know, I'd rather be text message. I'd rather a phone call. Like they're really clear on kind of how they want to operate, how accessible they are how decisions should be made in that team. That's really important. From a more personal side of how they operate, I think they listen more than they speak, right? We've all heard this. Yeah, It's a platitude. I don't know really when you get to meet more senior leaders, the best ones honestly do ask more questions. You know, they might ask 
four or five questions in their operating review session and they listen. And at the end, they may have one or two comments. But sometimes their questions are so poignant that they're pushing the team forward because they're really thoughtful questions. And I think that is very different than leaders who just talk the whole time and you know take up space. I also think they're not afraid to give up feedback and recently heard a great concept of instant performance feedback, which is just giving people feedback in that moment and calling people out and you know saying, hey, I think this is right now what you said is, you know, I would like to see that differently. That's it goes against our culture, right? Et cetera. But I think that's really, really important. They're also optimistic, but realistic. The reality is leaders who are pessimistic are challenging because the idea is that we have to get the team to win. They got to believe they're going to win. We need to set goals that demonstrate that. And I get that the world is challenging, can be difficult. But if you're a pragmatist and really masquerading as a pessimist, you know, then that's a problem. We need you to be optimistic. Doesn't mean you're optimistic with rose-colored glasses and you're lying to each other, but it's got to be, you know, we can't overcome this as a team. There's a path forward, right? That's really, really important. And the last, I think this one is really, really important for me. I've always appreciated it. It's leaders who just challenge the status quo and believe everything can be improved. Doesn't mean everything needs to be improved, but they believe everything can be improved. And so you're never sort of satisfied, you know, and it's almost the best leaders are consistently dissatisfied is actually a really good trait as long as it doesn't turn into a negative piece where you're kind of beating the team up. But it's always like, hey, that's great. I'd love to see you be able to get 2% more next time. You know, that's that's stretching of goals of what great leaders do uh, and build in. Okay, love these. They find ways to create personal value. And you said they're thinking about the best and highest use of my time. Right? How many people do we know who get stuck into the day-to-day run, 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 do, 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 and don't even take time to ask what is the best and highest use of my time? Or the company's paying a lot to have me sitting in this seat. What's that to worth <laughs> to the company? What's that time worth to it? So any advice or anything you've seen people do on how to evaluate what's the best and highest use of my time? Yeah, you know, coming from a consulting background, one of the things we learned early on was that um, as I moved up kind of from consultant to senior consultant to managing consultant, if you will, was in consulting, we never wanted to have a consultant who's done something before do it again. Because that actually was a learning opportunity for someone who's more junior, mm-hmm. less experienced. And so we'd be working on a project or a presentation and one of the partners would say, hey, I know you've done that before. Why isn't Jim doing that? Why don't you give that to Elaine? And so it kind of stuck with me that doesn't mean you're not going to help them coach them, but it was like, I could do other things. And so then I'd say, well, if I give that up, if I give that presentation deck, what should I be doing? Yeah. And he would say, well, you should be working on business development. You should be working on this. You know, this is how you should be thinking about it. You should be coaching them, not doing the work for them. And so I think just as leaders, it's going to depend on where you're at and what you do. Um, but so much as being a senior leader is managing stakeholders, managing expectations. You know, if you're really getting in the weeds and looking at the deliverables and the nitty gritty and finding errors, uh, that's probably not what you should be doing. You know, more or less, are you getting your agenda set? Uh, are you moving things forward in terms of that's going to add real value? Uh, so that's it is a hard exercise, but that is what you got to be thinking about every day. 
All right. So I hope everybody's heard that, that the job of the senior executive is stakeholder management. At the end of the day, it's communication. It's keeping everybody on the same plate, on the same board, information flowing. That is your job and making sure your team is aligned behind what that means and how we do it. All right. So that was highest and best use of my time and very, very clear about that, what those, what leaders need to do. And then you were very clear about an operating system that they're very clear how they run their business lives, how they run their teams, how they want to be communicated to, how they run meetings, what metrics they look at to say things are on track. They just have this very crisp sense of what their operating system, for lack of a better word, is really about. Um, And I can imagine that that makes it so easy for people on the team to know where they stand. You know what to do. You don't have to second guess it. You don't have to try it, have a misstep. You can just like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. All right. And then you said give feedback. And then this last, you said optimistic and realistic. Yes. Who wants to follow a pessimist? Maybe through a crisis, but not a step further, I think. And then this appetite to constantly challenge the status quo without leaving people feeling beaten up. So, I want to stick on that one for a minute. How? Because, you know, there's that restlessness of constantly wanting more can tend into a perfectionist tendency. And that's not necessarily the most exciting thing to follow somebody behind who's a perfectionist. And at the same time, if you're satisfied with absolutely everything, is you're never pushing the team to get better. So how do, how do you think about that right balance in there? That's a great question, Wanda. You know, for me, the concept I've learned in my career is around, you know, great leaders relate or they require, right? So if you think I have a, a two by two matrix of this, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, but, you know, if all you do with re- is relate with your team, you know, you're their best friend. If all you do is require, you end up being a dictator, and that's not good either. So you have to have a balance. And so when I think about this person who the leaders I've worked for that are challenging the status quo, it's a little bit like a parent or a coach that says, I know you did this and I know you did really well and you made your personal best. Maybe today in this track, say we're running track and a sprint and you made your personal best. But I know deep down you could do even better, but you've got to keep pushing harder. And so it's really the intent behind it is the positive piece. You know, there are definitely a lot of leaders that I will not mention that probably get a lot of press that are surely challenging the status quo in a way that is demoralizing, you know, can be upsetting, can make people feel like they're not really winning. So I think it's challenging the status quo in a way that you're like, we're making progress. And I love the book, The Progress Principle. And we can always get better, right? There's no way we're stopping because that's just how things work. Um, You've always got to get better. That, um... Let's see, Sally Jenkins did a podcast with me just recently. She's a sports news writer. Great podcast. And this one is going to be a great podcast too. But she was talking about that willingness to, you know, when you're a top performer, a top athlete, you want to take that next step. And you're constantly looking for any feedback, any edge, any any little tiny thing because it's seconds, split seconds that allows you to win. And I often think about having that mentality in your own career, as well as then as the leader pulling that out of people that are around you without them feeling like they are never good enough. So it's a fine balance. It, it is a fine balance. 
And I think, and I love that analogy because you're right. That is kind of what athletes go for. I think the best executives do it as well, but you also have to know your team. And so not every team member is going to respond to the football coach screaming at them to go faster, you know, that mentality that's going to chase them away. So it's a balance of that, but there are some team members where you can pull them inside and say, Hey, I know you want to go farther and faster and you want my job someday. And to do that, I think you've got to be doing this, this, and this, and they'll respond. So it's going to depend a little bit. Um, but if we don't set, 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 sorry, if we don't set high expectations, you know, we guarantee we will not hit them. You know, and I think people rise to that level of expectation. So I'm, I'm a big fan of continue to push the team. All right. I love it. Keep pushing. Uh, a little bit of restlessness, but not towards the point of total impatience or perfectionism. Okay, fair enough. Relate and require a combination. All right, let's shift and talk about maybe our favorite topic. It's a good thing we left this at the end because I have a feeling we could talk for an hour about this one alone, leadership development. The younger generation in particular is very keen on doing developing their leadership skills. They know that that's important. They believe that's going to be one of those balloon skills, as you said at the very beginning. Um, and yet, I don't know that we're doing a great job of serving them or serving our more seasoned leaders. So we can debate whether that's true or not. And so what do you advise people do apart from wait for some elite program to come along that maybe will help them? You know, first, let me be clear that I think by demonstrating leadership is actually how you get put in those high potential programs. So it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy on that. It's like, wow, this person's really great. They seem really smart. They're doing great work. Let's put them in this program to help them accelerate faster. You know, we don't take people and put them in elite leadership development programs because they're not performing very well or we've kind of passed them over, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's an opportunity there. But really, when I think about this, Wanda, when you're early in your career, it's all about taking initiative. And mm -hmm. it seems so simple. Yeah, I don't know how we teach this. Um, I think everyone has a different level of ambition and taking initiative. But for what I've seen is that it's all about identifying projects that no one else wants to do, that maybe are hard to get to, haven't had the time to do it. And when that project comes up, raise your hand. Or better yet, send an email to your boss and say, hey, I've noticed this opportunity. I think we should be doing X, Y, and Z. And it really can differentiate you. Um, and I know that I did this early in my career and it's, you know, it's been a little while now, but when I started IBM, one of the first days I got into, uh, I guess the first week I got to IBM, I was on a project at Sprint. We had over 400 consultants, it's this massive, massive project. And the partner who ran the organizational change strategy group had a meeting at the end of the first day and said, Hey, we have a deck due tomorrow and we have to put five or six decks together and it's gotta be look beautiful. Who wants to do it? And everyone looked around and kind of crickets and I was like, I'll do it. Me and another person raised their hand. We stayed up till I think four in the morning to do this deck. But after that, because I took the initiative and was willing to work hard, that partner liked me and was like, hey, JP, I'm going to give you more opportunities. And within two months, I was leading a whole work stream. But it's taking initiative that helps you stand out. And I think a lot of times we want people to pick us and find us. The reality is you need to make sure they find you. That's the first piece. Second is just it's do great work and tell people tell people about it. Mm -hmm. So actually tell people about it. It's okay to humble brag because 
I know we all want to do good work and hope they realize and say that's awesome and you're great. No, there's an art to this and you shouldn't be out there bragging in a way that's going to be like, it's all about you. But you can certainly say, you know, hey, wasn't that a lot of work we did last week? Um, you know, I'm really, really excited we got this thing done. There's ways to talk about what you're doing and not be playing a politics game. But the reality is if we don't tell people we're doing great work, they may not notice. And so you've got to do that. So master that as you are coming up your career. Um, and actually, I'll tell you one good example of that. One way that I think people have done a great job of this is by sending your boss or whoever the stakeholder is an email at the end of the week on what you've accomplished. Hmm. Now, if you do this every week, because it's just part of how you keep your boss informed, maybe you're in a remote role, et cetera, and most bosses appreciate this type of information, you are very quickly letting your boss know what you're doing every week and you're not bragging because they're used to getting this update email and they're actually going to thank you for it. So that's one tip I think that was pretty great that I've heard. Um, the last is just learn and share what you learn. And so the first 10 years of your career should just be about learning. And that's why I think experiences are so important. Having great mentors and bosses are important. Working for companies, they'll help you have those experiences. Because that's really what you want to start to harvest as you get to the second half of your career or even the middle of your career. But don't be afraid to share what you're learning with your boss, your manager, your peers. And that I don't mean just learning like on the job, but learning in terms of the business. Learning about how sales is done. Learning about what the opportunities are in HR or whatever function you're working in. That's really important because people appreciate that. You know, um, I have a podcast, you know that, and, and we have CHROs on. And one of the CHROs for Verizon, Sam Hammock, said her, she's like, I'm happy to meet anyone who wants to meet with me and mentor. But when you come to me, have a point of view and bring me something. So she's like, I might be really interested in how the internship program is working. Bring me a perspective of something I won't get anywhere else because I'm the CHRO. Like, I'm going to want to listen to what you're doing, but please bring me something as well. I want to learn from you just as much as you think, you know, vice versa. So that's a great technique. Um, and I totally agree with that. Coming and bringing some value will get you a long way. It's interesting. I often think one of the ways of brag, so one way to brag is to combine those two. Right. So when I was meeting with this client last week, I learned X. Or I happened to be at this networking event and I met a competitor and learned why. Just you can you can like drop where you were and what it was you learned. Or I was in this um you know net the, whatever recruiting event or this any the, like any number of things. Just bring that one soundbite of information. And I love that you said point of view. Have a point of view and bring me something. That's a great tip, Wanda. Great. That's a great one. I love that. Okay. Um, Let's do one last question. Suppose you think you've made a mistake. You took a job. You know that sinking feeling. You took a job. You're a month maybe into it, maybe less. And you think, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. And this isn't the group I'm going to enjoy doing. How do you get out of it? And you've got about two minutes to answer this. <laughs> well, it's a tough situation. And I'm empathetic for people who are facing this, right? Because it of course, something you're not going to really anticipate or want to have happened to you. But the first thing I think you assess is how bad is the situation and why do you feel this way? What's really causing it? Is it a bad boss? Is the job not what you expected? Is the culture seem different? You know, There's lots of reasons why it may not feel like the fit. 
um, that you believe is going to be. I like then to say you have to assess is it a dip or is it a cul-de-sac? <laughs> and this is Seth Gooden's great book, The Dip, points out. And I think it's a great book because a dip is something where you've got to push through and there's <laughs> actually going to be, it's going to be okay. And we all feel a dip when we start a new job. We feel uncomfortable. We don't feel like we know how to do it. Um, new people to learn. You know, there's lots of things that can happen that make you feel like I want to quit, go back to my old job, or it's the wrong fit. Yeah. But to the dip, it's going to get better. If it's a cul-de-sac, then it's not going to get better, and you've got to really think about uh, and evaluate your options. And most of us probably can't quit a job we recently accepted. So you have to think about a couple of things because it also will look poorly if you leave in a short period of time. Even if it's not you, companies will unfortunately judge you for that at times. So I think you've got to basically say, how do I stay in this role and make it work? If it's unhealthy, of course, you should leave, right? If you've left your company on good terms and you have a good manager over there, sometimes you can explore on jumping back. I think that's a, that's a viable option. You know, otherwise, I think you've got to look at it and say, how do I make this a dip, not a cul-de-sac, get through uh, until I can really find the next role in that company or a new company altogether? I've heard the advice that if you made a mistake and you know you've made a mistake and you move within the first three months and you don't do that repeatedly, then people will understand. Like, you're going to have to answer, I made a mistake and I learned from that mistake and I, here's where I'm going now. But that if you wait for nine months, folks say, what, <laughs> what happened? So I guess I'm asking, do you agree with that? One. Yeah, I think you're right. I think if you, you know, pull the exit handle quicker is better. You know, um and you have a good good place to go to next, right? I think that's going to be that's always the hard part. Um but I agree with you. If you wait 6 months or a year, they're then you got to stick it else. out. You got to and I love this notion of is it a dip or is it a cul-de-sac? Am I going to push through it or is this really a dead end? And then how am I going to survive it? Also, I think there's something to be said for what's causing this and where can I, how can I make a turn in that? Even if it's a bad manager, somebody else has dealt with that manager. So get some advice. They've got some perspective for sure. Okay. I feel a little bit like, J.D., we have talked about everything under the sun, but I love this conversation because of the breadth of what it is that we've talked about and the very practical advice about how to think about careers, think about your leadership, think about your own growth and development. There's an awful lot in here. Um, fabulous. So last question, one minute, what takes you out of your comfort zone today? How do you survive it? Well, for me, you know, there's been a couple of things that have taken me out of my comfort zone. Uh, launching a podcast like you, I think putting yourself out there on the internet and trying to produce produce great content that'll help next generation HR leaders uh, and develop their careers was always, uh, that is something that's pushed me. Being a chief people officer for a private equity-backed company has been interesting. Yeah. That has been great. Uh, you know, and I think the other piece is trying to balance it all and be a great father and husband. That takes me out of my comfort zone to balance all of this uh, is not easy. So, Okay. So hopefully then you go back to your original advice. How do I differentiate? Where's my experience, breadth coming from, and who are the relationships I'm calling on or using to help me get through it? JP, great conversation. Thanks for joining me today. 
And if you've enjoyed this conversation, please like us on your favorite podcast provider and definitely join us next week for another episode and getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.